God's word in Luke 8 says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who is it that has touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more. But Jesus said, But Jesus on hearing this said to him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. J. Todd Billings, in his book, Rejoicing and Lament, begins this way. Get well soon. Jesus loves you. God is bigger than cancer. My tears started to flow as I read these words. They are from a 15-year-old girl with Down syndrome in my congregation. Less than a week earlier, the doctor spoke the diagnosis to me, about which he had no doubt. A cancer in the bone marrow, multiple myeloma, an incurable cancer, a fatal disease. I had been in a fog ever since. How was I to face each day when my future, which had seemed so wide open, had suddenly narrowed. How was I to... My world seemed to be caving in on itself with fog in each direction I turned so that no light could shine in. While I'd received many cards in the previous days, this one was different. God is bigger than cancer. Yes. She did not say God will cure your cancer or God will suffer with you. God is bigger than cancer. The fog is thick, but God is bigger. My cancer story was already developing being its own sense of drama. The sky was creeping in, enveloping my whole world so that nothing else could creep in. But God's story, the drama of God's action in the world was bigger. The girl in my church wasn't denying the fog of the loss, but testifying to a God who was greater. The God made known in Jesus Christ, who has shown us that light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend, overcome it. In my tears, there was not only grief, but also joy that God's story in Christ is bigger than my cancer story, period. And so with his book, he begins with this story telling of how he wrestled through his own cancer and his own struggling to have faith in God. So how would you, if you had a friend who was diagnosed with terminal cancer, counsel them? 
What words would you say? Should we tell them, oh, everything's going to turn out all right? You know, if you're of this mindset, maybe now's the time to tell them, hey, if you follow this natural diet, it'll all go away. Perhaps you have some other words, or perhaps you think there's really nothing you can say. There really is no hope. Everything you say is empty platitudes. And when you've been in tough situations before, you wished everyone had just been quiet. As you stared disease and death in the face, all you had was despair looking right back at you. You know, as a culture, we don't handle these things very well. You know, we avoid talking about death, and when someone dies, we use all kinds of euphemisms for it. We literally spend billions of dollars in plastic surgery to keep up the appearance of looking young. Now, while we should seek help from surgeries to return normalcy, as the saying goes, there's only two certainties, death and taxes. Now, taxes are eight days away, but that's another sermon. This morning, we're interacting with dying and death. And how should you respond? Well, here we see Jesus dealing with this. He confronts, or is confronted rather, by a dad with his dying daughter. And then he confronts a disease. And in these stories, God's going to reveal how we should deal with your or your child's disease and death. If you have a bulletin, you can see the outline. On the first, we'll see in verses 40 through 42 that a father is despairing of death. Then we see in verses 43 through 48, a father destroying disease. And lastly, from 49 to the end, a father conquering death. Well, here in verse 40, we see Jesus coming back across the lake. You may remember last week we saw that he had healed a man, a Gentile man of demons, cast them out. And there, after he did that, everyone wanted him to get away. And yet as he returns, now the people want him. Jairus, even a synagogue ruler, comes up to him. Now their synagogues were their buildings where they would gather each Sabbath, where they would read the Old Testament and worship. And so Jairus, as a ruler of the synagogue, would be a well-respected man. He'd be a man that people in the community looked up. However, Jairus, he throws away all sense of decorum and propriety, and he falls down at Jesus' feet. He's begging that Jesus would come and heal his only daughter because she might die. Now it tells us she's 12 years old. And as a, any parent knows, a 12 years seemed like they flew by. Just seems like two days ago you were at the hospital holding them in your arms. And now you're thinking only six years till they go to college. Where did it all go? Where has the time gone? And as a parent, nothing is worse than watching our children undergo disease and traumatic treatments to help them recover. Everything in us cries out for healing for relief of their suffering. And Jairus, as he sees his daughter in this desperate plight, he's crying out everything in him for help. You know, our diseases often leave us emotionally and spiritually drained. You know, this can begin early on when we start to know something's wrong and we don't know what it is. And we can begin to worry and fear as we wanting to know what is the diagnosis. We get consumed about that, and that's all we can think of until we get our test results back. However, just like anxiety and fear can control and grip our life, God wants to be controlling and gripping our life, even with our diseases. You know, he uses death and disease to test us, grow us, and even glorify himself. Some of you all know a man named John Piper, and several years ago he was diagnosed with cancer. And as he reflected, he wrote a little article entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. I put some out on a little stand if you'd like it. It's very helpful to think through. 
And he gave ways that we can waste the gift of cancer. Now that may say weird, the gift of cancer, but God gives us things like cancer, disease, to grow. It can be a tool for our growth, or it can be a tool for our despair. It can draw us into deeper fellowship and faith, or it can drive us into bitterness and fear and despair. Now, it's not that trusting God makes us stoic, that we act as though we're not bothered by it, that we say all is well. Even as Jairus, we might here be pleading, begging with God for healing. But rather, it's the reality that our physical disease is a small glimpse of the much deeper problem we have. Our disease of sin. And that knowing God and enjoying Him are a far greater benefit than having a healthy body. And so God gives us these sufferings because in our sufferings, they're the furnace that tests our faith, that reveals it for what it is. And so suffering can be refining, purifying our faith and hope in God. You know, it shatters the illusion of our self-dependency, of our self-made plans as we have charted out in front of us the life that we want to lead. And yet, ultimately, we're in God's hands. And we can have fresh trust and dependence on Him as we are reminded of reality. Well, here, Jesus is going with Jairus. But as He goes, we see a plot twist. And we see the second section of Father Destroying Disease in verses 43-48. through 48. Now, here's talking about the crowds. And I wonder if you've ever been in a packed mass of crowds. A few times I've been in events where there have been 80,000 plus people. And when it's over, as you're leaving... There's just this mass of people jostling, bumping, pushing, trying to get out. And you just hope you don't get run over. But as Jesus is going, all of a sudden, if we could use this analogy, the camera zooms in on this one woman. The camera zooms in on this one woman who's trying to secretly get close to Jesus and touch her. And if we continue this analogy, after the camera focused on this woman, it would then fade to show you that it's going to go the prior years of her life. And as the scene fades, you'd see a much younger woman in a house. And there she is. She's trying to take care of this hemorrhaging of blood. Well, the scene would change a little later, showing her attempt had failed. And she was trying again. And she failed. And then another scene. And scene after scene, you see her trying to recover. And yet nothing is happening. And discouragement, frustration, despair begin to set in. Well, then the scenes begin to change because now not only is she trying, but doctors are coming in. And she's paying them, but nothing's changing. Along with the doctors coming, each time a new scene appears, she looks a little bit older. And you notice that the decorations and the different furniture in her house is slowly disappearing. Along with this, tragically, as she's losing her health, as she's lost her health, She's also being slowly isolated from society. Leviticus 15 would show that her condition makes her ceremonially unclean. So she can no longer go to the temple. She can no longer go to the synagogue. Not only that, she would keep her distance from others so that she doesn't make them unclean. And surely at first her friends are coming still to encourage her, but as life gets busy, less and less are coming. And she's alone and a social outcast. Well, now more years and years pass, and each time the woman is aging dramatically, and by the last scene of this flashback, 
you recognize, well, that's the woman who we first saw before it faded to show the prior life. In 12 years, she deteriorated from a vibrant woman who had possessions to a tired, aged woman with no money and barely anything to live on. And yet then, as she sits in this sparse house, she overhears neighbors telling of this man named Jesus who heals people, who casts out demons. And you see hope flicker in her eyes, but then she almost immediately shuts us down, jaded after 12 years of all her money. Can this really be real? I've given everything and nothing has gotten better. And then yet, she hears others telling of Jesus. And she starts thinking and remembering, I remember all those promises that I learned in the Old Covenant. That a Messiah would come. That He would end sickness, suffering, and death. Could this be Him? And then if you look in the parallel account in Mark 5, she says, If I touch even His garments, I will be made well. And so she trusts that this is He. And so we're, she slips back into the crowd. And she's secretly getting close to Jesus. And this is where the camera first zoomed out. We see her sneaking in and out. And then she sees an opening. She darts forward and she just touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And to her utter joy, to her, her amazement, the flow of blood abruptly stops. But then to her horror, the crowd also abruptly stops. And Jesus turns and says, Who touched me? Now you could hear the incredulity of Peter as he goes, I mean, Jesus, there's all this crowd. I mean, do you really think you're going to be able to walk with a crowd and never get bumped? Come on, Jesus. There's all these people around you. What are you talking about? And yet Jesus is not so much talking about being bumped. He's talking about a touch of faith. Well, the woman immediately realizes her cover is blown and trembling. She comes and falls before Jesus. She confesses what's been going on for 12 years. She confesses why she came, and also she testifies to her healing. And you can imagine her mixed emotions. Joy, 12 years is over. I'm healed. Despair, what is Jesus now going to say? What are the crowds going to think as I've had to share my most intimate suffering with everyone who is here? Well, Jesus responds in verse 48 with compassionate, caring, and explaining words. Notice what he says, verse 48. The first thing he says is, daughter. Now that's the word Jairus used for his child, daughter. Now clearly this woman is not Jesus' physical descendant. Rather, this is merely the implications of what Jesus said earlier in this chapter in verse 21. There Mary and Jesus' brothers come to see him and what does Jesus say? He says, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So this woman, by the fact she heard of Jesus and then in faith went and did what she should do in faith, she has made Jesus' daughter. Thus Jesus relates to her, not physically, but spiritually. And Jesus has a greater concern for her than Jairus does for his own daughter. Jairus is merely a reflection of the depths of Jesus' fatherly concern for his child. Now it's interesting Many would have been thinking, well, hold on, Jairus, this is an important figure. This person's respected. Jesus, you need to not really worry about this woman. Look, look think about 
all the influence you're now going to have. You'll be able to speak in synagogues. If you get influence with this synagogue ruler, maybe he'll tell another one. And your authority, your influence can grow. And yet Jesus does not think and look at people the way we do. Jesus has just as much concern for a beggarly, poor, social outcast as he does one of the most important figures in their community. You know, as you wonder, does anyone else really care? Does anyone else even notice that I'm here? Jesus looks down with his fatherly concern and says, I care about all, the rich, the poor, men, women, boys, girls, those who are ceremonially clean, those who are ceremonially unclean. I care about them all because I am their father. Not only does Jesus heal her, he then stops. He takes the time to listen to her. You know, Jesus isn't repulsed by her medical condition or her unclean status. He doesn't recoil in horror and say, how dare you touch me, you unclean woman? No, he stops. He calls her his daughter and reassures her of his love for her. And what about you? As you are confronting a disease, as you're confronting death, or maybe you're not confronting those this week, maybe you're confronting other suffering, do you remind yourself of this amazing truth that we are God's loved children whom he cares about? His concern doesn't always mean the removal of our disease, but his concern is always for the pursuit of our good, even in the allowing of any suffering. Well, Jesus goes on, because after calling her daughter, he says, your faith has made you well. Now notice, it wasn't her touching Jesus that made her well. You know, she didn't steal magic powers from Jesus as though he was this orbing and flowing magnet that you could touch and steal some power from? No. Rather, Jesus saved her, and it was her faith that connected her to Jesus. You know, it's funny, as humans, we crave something to touch, something to feel, something to hold as we pray, so that we can know, oh, God really hears my prayers. I'm in a special holy place. I got this special holy item. It was just a couple weeks ago, I drove up here to church to do the work for the day, and as I walked up, this woman was stopping, and you may have noticed in the bricks, there's a cross outlined, and she was touching the bricks and praying, which I have no problem with. If you want to touch our bricks and pray, you can. But you don't need to touch the bricks and pray. That's the point. You don't need to come up here and touch this cross as though it's some holy thing that will give more oomph to your prayers. All you need is faith in Christ. He is what connects you to God. You don't need a holy item. You don't need a holy place. You don't need a holy person. You just need Jesus by faith. And you are connected to the omnipotent God. Faith is what connects us to Jesus, not any object of the faith. Yet it appears that her faith did more than physically heal her. You know, you, in version, your version in verse 48, it probably says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Well, the word for made you well is also a word used quite often for saved you. Now, it's always tricky when words can mean multiple things because we don't want to twist it to how we want it to mean. Except again, if you look at the parallel account in Mark 5, 34, Jesus says both. He says, you have been healed and you have, this word, been saved. Jesus wouldn't iterate, say twice, you've been healed, you've been healed. He's showing that her faith 
was latching on to her, and her faith saved her. He didn't say, okay, I'm glad you're now clean. Now you need to go start doing all these religious things to be saved. Faith in Jesus alone brought her eternal salvation. And thus, Jesus can say the third thing. Go in peace. You know, peace with God only comes by being spiritually healed by Jesus. Now, peace here is not referring to an emotional, subjective state. It's talking about the objective, eternal peace we can have with God. That we're no longer enemies due to our sin, but we've been brought near. As Jesus has said, she says, daughter. Now, just put yourself in this woman's shoes. Twelve years, she has not been allowed to go to the temple. Twelve years, has not been able to go to the synagogue. Twelve years could not go and worship or even be around people. And yet now, not just a priest, not just a holy man, the Son of God says, you have peace with God. What comfort must have flowed over her? And yet, in this, as we even noted at the beginning of the service, this raises some challenging questions. Well, how do we actually respond when God doesn't heal? You know, we're just given 12 years, but this woman had 12 years in between that every day she had to think about, how do I relate to God today when this has been year two? This has been year seven. This has been year 11. And I haven't been healed. And no one is around. And I'm, I can't even go worship you with other people. You know, thankfully, we don't have to guess how we should respond. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, God and his word has given us psalms of lament. Over a third of the psalms are psalms showing us how to cry to God. When we realize, look, we live in this sinful, broken world. And yet we also live knowing that God's good and he's sovereign. And how do those mesh right now with my cancer, with my broken relationship, with my hurting finances? And laments allow us to cry to God knowing these tensions and wrestling through them. Andy Byers writes, Psalm 10, 1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 42, 9 says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Psalm 102, 10, why have you taken me up and thrown me down? We're not supposed to talk like this in church on Sunday mornings, are we? The crying, please, the lament psalms sound like banned language. The kind of seditious talk that would get us into trouble. The sentiments, however, are not alien to us. Though rarely voiced publicly, they lie unsurfaced within our troubled hearts and minds during certain seasons of our lives. Praising God and trusting God involves more than singing joyful songs. The lament psalms teach us that weeping can be worship. But today we rarely think of weeping as worship. This has made the church less hospitable to the dispirited and injured individuals for whom the church should serve as a haven for healing. When the depressed and disconsolate are in our midst, do they feel free to, answer, to not answer, fine, just fine, to our greetings? When the church fails to provide some outlet for crying to God from out of the depths, then broken souls may turn elsewhere. To our shame... The bar stool and the psychiatrist's couch are often viewed as more hospitable context for tormented souls than the church's pew. 
Except the sad reality is the bar stool just leaves you looking at another drink. It doesn't really deal with your problems. The couch just leaves you with a sympathetic figure, but an impotent one who has no control. In the Psalms, we're reminded that we can come to God in faith, come to his people in faith, being honest about our despair, our discouragements, and even our defeats. That we don't come stoically saying, oh, yeah, that doesn't bother me. Yes, I know my child died, but God is good. No, we come in our tears. We don't come with false fronts pretending everything is all right. God invites us to honestly wrestle with him. Holding that tension that you're good, God, and you're in control. But in this moment, I don't see how it fits together. And as we see in Jesus' words here in Luke, we don't just come to a listening ear. We don't just come to someone who's compassionate. We come to the God and Father who controls all, even the God and Father who's conquering death. And that's our last section, verses 49 to 56, a father conquering death. Because you may remember, well, we've actually paused the story. We were going to Jairus' house, but now we've taken all this time to deal with this sick woman. And we don't know, and so it's always a little dangerous to speculate, but you have to think that in some ways, Jairus is sitting there thinking, okay, um, this is wonderful, Jesus. Yes, you're healing this woman. Okay, but you know, she's had this for 12 years, and it's not really fatal. Can we keep going? My daughter's dying. And then as he's there, once someone comes up and says, Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. And surely, hope seems to flow away. Because what is Jesus? Well, he's just a teacher. And maybe like the prophets of old, he could heal some diseases. But no one, not even Jesus, could do something like take away death. And yet Jesus is going to show them he's more than any teacher. He's more than just a great prophet. He is God's son. And he can conquer death. And so Jesus comes and he's showing them that, look, he didn't mess up. He didn't make a mistake. Oh, I shouldn't really listen to this woman and healed her. I should have done that later. No, his timing is always according to his plan. And we've seen that over and over in Luke. He shows up to the funeral coming out of Nain as it's coming out. He arrives on the beach as the demoniac is there at the same time. And here he's allowed this woman to interrupt his path so he can pause and talk to her and then give greater faith to Jairus and us, seeing that he's not just a good teacher who can heal diseases. He is God's son who conquers death. And as Jesus fears, Jairus fears, Jesus tells him not to be afraid in verse 50. Instead, Jesus tells him to believe and your daughter will be healed. And so here, there's a greater faith called for, a faith of resurrection. And as Jesus gets to the house, he goes there with his three disciples. And there, many people are weeping, they're wailing, they're making a loud commotion. Now their culture was much different than ours. In their culture, if a relative died, if someone died, you would hire people to come and mourn for you. Now we think, well, that's a little weird. Hire someone to come mourn? Isn't that fake? Yeah, like that DJ who's being happy for the wedding, they're really into it. Well, no, it's just a different outlook. It's saying, look, we, this is so serious, we want to hire someone to show what's going on. And here these people are weeping and wailing, making this loud commotion. And Jesus then says to them, 
Look, she's not really dead. She's just asleep. Now we immediately see these are hired mourners because what do they do? Well, they immediately stop weeping and they start mocking Jesus. Jesus, look, we're professionals. We know when someone's dead. This is our job. We don't weep when they're still alive. Come on, Jesus. This is, this is ridiculous. This girl is not sleeping. Now, Jesus is not making a mistake. Rather, he's talking like he did in John 11, 11, where he goes and tells his disciples, we're not going to go see Lazarus yet because he's just asleep. And his disciples are going, well, then what's the big deal? And then a few verses later, Jesus says, well, really, he's a dead. He is dead, and I will call him back. Jesus was showing his disciples in John 11 and us here in Luke 8 that he came to conquer sin and death. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father sent his only son Jesus to conquer death, and Jesus' victory allows him to speak and call people back from death. So here, once the mourners are gone, Jesus grasps the girl's hand and says, Child, arise. You know, the power of Jesus is so great. This is like simple words, like, Hey, sweetie, time to wake up. She comes back from death. You know, the way you might go to your child after their nap, and you just go, Hey, come on, time to wake up. That's what Jesus does for his daughter. And she comes back to life. And then Luke tells us that her soul returned, her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Here's an interesting and quick side note about what happens at death. When we die, our body remains, but our spirit goes and is judged by the Lord. That's when we go to a funeral and there's an open casket. They are not fully there. We see their body, but their spirit is no longer with it. When one day, when we're given our resurrected body, our body and spirit will be reunited forever. However, we live with them being torn apart until Christ comes again. However, we need to be clear, when we die, heaven doesn't get an angel. We are going to be much better than angels. We will rule the angels. When we die, we don't reincarnate. When we die, we don't become part of the life force of the universe. When we die, it's not just over. It's that, well, that's it. You just turn back to dust. When we die, our spirit is judged and either goes to the Lord or in torment. And then one day when they're reunited, we'll be in there forever. But this is good news because we will never be apart from the Lord. Back to this story, though. The girl immediately arises and Jesus tells them, give her something to eat. I think about the last time you were really sick. And you may have really thought, boy, I'm about to die. But this girl actually did die. And it probably took a little while for you to regain your appetite, to get up and walk around. Except immediately, she's called back from death by the one who conquered death. And she can eat and walk and go about. So how do you respond? How do we respond when disease and death come upon us? You'll hear... Jesus gives us four reasons why we can trust our Heavenly Father, even with the greatest issues of life, disease and death. First, we can trust because our Heavenly Father is a God of love. His question really poses, the story poses the question, how can Jesus go and do all this? 
How can he overcome death like waking a child? He can because Jesus gave his life that we might have life. And think about your children. When they're scared, what do they do? They grab onto your hand and you walk them down the dark hallway. You go and you show them that nothing's in the closet. And you hold their hand so that they might be safe. But Jesus had to let go of his father's hand. It's interesting, as he was in the garden before his arrest, he cried out, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father let go of his son's hand so that he for eternity could always grip yours. You know, the cry of lament of Jesus was that he was there taking the curse of sin fully. And in that, his father turned his face and took his hand away. But he did that as a representative for all of us. So that the effects of sin would not fully reign in our life. But so that we would overcome sin. Overcome its effects of disease and death. You know, he had so much concern and love for his children that he gave his life that we might have it. And you see Jairus' desperate pleas as Jairus is on his knees begging for his daughter is a reflection of Jesus coming and begging for us. Not just begging because of his sorrow, but by his own death in our place. And so Christ's nail-pierced hands Guarantee that our hands will be forever secure. Second, we can trust our Heavenly Father in even the worst of life because we see His power. You just think of some of the things we've seen in Luke 8. Jesus calmed a storm. He cast out demons. He has healed disease. He's conquered death. Nothing is outside of His control. Now this is also a warning. Because if Jesus controls death, then that means when we die, we'll all face him. And what is it that we will say to him when we face him that will allow him to say son and daughter? We've shown us in the story. It's faith in him. And his finished work is what will allow him to say, welcome, son and daughter. His power promises us hope from the final judgment of death. Well, third, we can trust because our father is a good God, he is good over all. Again, he didn't brush past this woman. He didn't say, oh, look, I got someone really important to see. Our father is good to everyone. You know, the Lord does not look at man as we do. As humans, we're always looking at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. You know, no one else in your life may care. Your doctor may have a horrible bedside manner. Your insurance may drag on the process actually trying to deny you what you deserve. But God sees and cares for all his children. And we can trust him. Well, fourth, we can trust our Heavenly Father because he's always working things out according to his timing. And this is probably the hardest because we wanted the diagnosis yesterday. We wish the disease had never come. This is really an inconvenient time for our suffering you know, I had like a space some years future where I'd get like really old, I could get sick. But not now. This isn't on my timetable. I have other plans. 
And yet, we see here, God controls all things. You know, it's not incidental that this woman was dealing with this for 12 years, and Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. You know, for this woman, those 12 years must have dragged by in her isolation. For the girl and her parents, the 12 years must have flown by. And yet, though for one they flew and the other they dragged, in both, God had his timing. That they would intersect when Jesus was there. And so Jesus' delay in healing the woman, Jesus' delay in going to Jairus' daughter was not a mistake. His delay in healing you, his timing of your death in your family or your own disease is not an accident. He controls the time and he will bring it forth in his good timing. You know, Francis Ridley Havergal, she was a woman who knew of suffering. She knew of the sufferings of disease and death. And when she was 11 years old, her mother died. And her father was often so sick she had to care for him. Now she was an extremely talented woman. A great poet was fluent in six different languages. And she loved to compose songs for God. Except she herself was so sick that once her doctor told her, you must choose. Do you want to live or do you want to write? But you can't do both. She's written many beautiful songs, one you may be well, well aware of, Take My Life and Let It Be. And yet she was often hampered by this poor health. And yet she persevered and she continued to trust in Christ. And today we're going to end our service by singing the song Like a River Glorious, a song that she wrote. And in the last verse she states, Every joy or trial falleth from above. Traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. And so when disease and death come knocking, don't fear, but believe in the all-loving, all-powerful, all-good, perfect-timing God. We've seen that here through Jesus not in fake cheeriness, not in a stoicism, possibly even with many laments, yet always in joy and sorrow, trusting Him, for His hands will never let us go. Let's pray. O oh Lord, may we realize Your grip on our hands. Lord, sometimes as rebellious children, we want to pull our hands away, but we thank You that Your grip on us is secure and that we can trust in You. Lord, may we delight in your son more each day and see your love for us through his death, his life in our place. It's in his name we pray. Amen.